deep inside, we know that it'll cost us something to open up our lives and share our faith. But this is our call, to open our lives and to share Christ with the people close to us. That's why we're running Alpha. It's a course over several weeks where you can invite your friends to explore life's biggest questions over a meal. It's a chance for you to invite that person into an honest conversation about faith. Alpha, who will you invite? Well, today we're rolling out our 52 weeks in community with Jesus, and that's a deck of cards. 52 cards, this beautiful little wooden holder for your cards. You unwrap it, you put the cards in, and uh, on the first card, it uh, gives you some instructions, a heads up about how to use the, the rest of the cards. And the rest of the cards are essentially 52 Bible verses on one side with a brief comment on the flip side of each card from uh, 51 people. I did two of them, 50 other people uh, contributed. So it's really fun. You say, okay, here's this verse, and then I wonder what somebody had to say about it. And it's, the comment isn't so much a, uh, a technical analysis of the passage or meant to be a devotional guide. It's literally just somebody's response to reading the, the verse. So we wanted it to be a very a relational uh, kind of comment that would allow the rest of us who were thinking about the verse to be free to think that way. Uh, one of the tricky things about creating devotionals is that it oftentimes demotivates people from digging deep. They read it and then they move on. Having just the verse in front of you for a week is meant to get you to think about it, perhaps uh, over the course of a week to memorize it just by having read it enough times. And then maybe being curious, curious enough to say, well, I wonder who wrote this? Uh, why did they write it? To whom did they write it? What's the, what's the impact of it? Uh, what's the larger context of, of this content? So why do this? Well, because uh, during this time of pandemic, we're, we're not connected. Even if you're on a, a Zoom call doing an alpha course or in a, in a you know, life group, uh, community Bible study, uh, it's hard to feel connected. So this is simply one way that in the next 52 weeks, rolling it out this week, that you would know that every, day, every week you're reading the same verse as, as some, a couple hundred other people. And that may or may not make much of a difference to you, but I think it's going to be fun to hear the stories that come out of that experience. Hey, what was that like for you? Uh, how did that play out? Did you use the verse perhaps as personal devotional time? Reflecting on it. Did it get you into the word in a deeper way? Did you find that it was helpful to discuss with your family? Hey, what do you think about this? Often family devotionals are really tricky for families. The kids are like, oh, do we have to do this? Mom or dad feels like, I'm not really capable of doing this. And so to have one verse, you'd say, hey, I was reading this verse this week. Have you guys read this? Oh, you didn't. What did you think? Here's what, how it hit me. And so the comment on the back of the card is, a, is, a, is permission to simply respond to it. Wow, I think that's fantastic. Or you know, that seems impossible. I wonder why God says that we should do that. So the larger purpose of it, though, uh, the, if, if one main purpose is to help us feel connected together, it's to help us feel connected together in Christ. Knowing that Jesus himself is the Savior and the Lord through whom all things were created and through whom we even have the Word of God. And so this community of people reading the verse each week, reflecting on it, 
is one more impetus for us to reflect on who we are in Christ. It's also how the Lord delivers his love to us. Why? Well, uh, because the, the love of God is content rich. It makes all kinds of things possible that otherwise wouldn't be possible. And so the word of God is also content rich because it's a conveyance. It's a, it's a way of delivering the love of God. Now the love of God is much bigger than the, the printed word of God, the Holy Scriptures. But through the mediation of the word, that is through the delivery of the word, we're connected to the Lord whose love we want to experience. Now if this, is, if this sounds complicated, forgive me. It's really simple. As I see what the word of God says, I'm compelled to reflect on it, to meditate on it, perhaps to apply it. And it's at that point where I'm starting to understand God's love for me. I'm starting to experience it. Why? Because I'm applying it in practical ways. And so our identity is shaped by knowledge and experience. Uh, If you grew up in a situation where the only knowledge you had of the world was very limited, it was a bit of a shock to realize that there's so much to know that I didn't have access to. If, for example, your identity um, is shaped by dysfunctional knowledge, you'll never amount to anything. You're worthless. If you're being oppressed or abused, if you're being taken advantage of, if that's all you know, think about how that shapes your identity. Gee, I'm not a person worthy of love or consideration. My life doesn't really add any value. Why would I even want to live? So if you're experiencing dysfunction and you're learning dysfunction, it warps your identity. If all of a sudden, though, you get accurate knowledge from God about who you are, his intentions for you, his incredible love for you, his compassion and empathy for you, and you start to embrace that knowledge and, and think on it and reflect on it and, and pray about it, Lord, is this true? Do you really love me like this? And as you start to obey his word and do the things he tells us to do, it shapes our experience. So if your knowledge and your experience are now reflecting the word of God and the actual love of God being delivered through those words and now through the relationships that are coming into your life because of people who uh, you're, you're getting to know who also are walking with God and experiencing his love. This is a revolutionary, life-changing experience. 52 weeks of reflecting on the word of God, hopefully putting you in a place where his knowledge would reshape and realign yours, that your experience would conform to the truth of the scripture that you're reading week in and week out. And so God's love shapes us over time if we listen to him and learn from him. For me to say God loves you, as true as that is, if there's no way for you to connect to that and to interact with that, it's just a fact hanging out there with no relevance to your actual life. But if you learn to listen to God through listening to his word, Lord, what do you mean by that? What are the implications of that? Or we start to appreciate, wow, Lord, the fact that you are saying these things to me through your word, I had no idea how much you loved me, how much you cared for me, how much you were providing for me, how much you want to do in me and through me. Our experience begins to reflect that. Again, so transformational because God's love shapes us over time as we listen to him, as we learn his ways, as, as somebody once said, as we think his thoughts after him. In community with other believers, and then in the world, carrying this message out to people who likewise uh, probably or possibly don't have access to the word that we have access to. Don't know what it has to say to them in their situation. 
So you see the power of this? In us and then through us. I, I love how the, the Word of God talks uh, all through the Old Testament and the New Testament about God's love for us. Here's just one example. At Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Let's unpack this a bit. The steadfast love of the Lord, that is the sturdy and the sturdy and enduring ongoing love of the Lord that you can count on that you can depend on, never ceases. God's love never ceases. It's forever. And nothing and no one can separate us from Him once we have come into a relationship with Him. And His mercies never come to an end. He never gets tired of practicing mercy toward us, compassion for us, empathy with us. He never gets tired of loving us. Now He disciplines us in our disobedience. He calls us to account uh, in our rebellion. But his mercies never cease. Just like, uh, uh, not like in other relationships where you might say, oh, they kind of got tired of me, got tired of putting up with me. God doesn't get tired of putting up with us. He will confront us with our sin. He'll comfort us in the midst of that sin by rescuing it, us from it, teaching us how to avoid it or to move through it, uh, <clears throat> to have alter- alternatives to the, the sinful behavior that would otherwise uh, alienate us from him, from our, ourselves and from other people. And so these mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. They're fresh, not stale. Sometimes uh, the word of God feels stale to me. Oh yeah, I've read that. I know that. Or I find I'm, I'm plateauing. And so emotionally I'm kind of flat before the Lord. Now rather than me saying, well, Lord, you must not be real. You must not be true. You must not be delivering on your promises because I'm not feeling it. Rather, it, it, I've come to understand that that is a signal that I am out of alignment with God. Uh, David in Psalm 51, having gone through a horrific uh, meltdown in his life of his own, based on his own disobedience, now restored by God, he says, Lord, restore the joy to my salvation. Renew me, refresh me. If you're feeling maybe out of sorts in your, in your walk with the Lord, don't blame him, don't blame circumstances. And don't even blame yourself. Just say, this is Lord where I am. Meet me here. Meet me here. Maybe you need a fresh way of approaching his word. Perhaps this is the fresh way for you. And by the way, uh, if you want to get one of these, let us know and we'll get one to you. You can either pick them up on Sunday morning. We were distributing them uh, this weekend. Uh, but we'll get one in your hand if you'd like one. So here's the good news. God loves you and he esteems you. That, whole, that means he holds you in high regard. Yeah, but I'm a sinner. I, 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 maybe uh, I, I, you, know, you could say I've been so indifferent toward him or rebellious toward him. All right. He still, he still holds you in high regard. He might not love where you are and who you are in terms of what you're doing or not doing. But he loves you because of who he is. And that overcomes who you are and where you are. His love truly is unconditional. It's not because love. Well, because you do this, I love you. It's not, it's not if love. Well, if you do this, then I'll love you. It's in spite of love. In spite of the fact of who you are and where you are. In active or passive rebellion toward me. I love you. In fact, the scriptures tell us that 
While we, were, while we were yet enemies, while we were yet dead in our sin, Christ died for us. He loves us that much. So God loves you. He esteems you. He knows that you are lost without him. Now this offends people. Uh, I've heard people take great umbrage with, hey, what do you mean we're lost? What do you talk about? Jesus came to seek the lost. Who do you think you are talking about lost? I'm an atheist. I'm an agnostic. How dare you call me lost? Well, uh, it's not me calling you that. It's the way God sees you. For all practical purposes, you're lost to him, even though he's present to you. Either you're, you're defending against him or you're ignoring him or you just hadn't had the occasion to understand who he is. And so here we see in John chapter 17, verses 25 to 26, a small part of a larger prayer that Jesus is praying for his disciples and for us on the occasion of his last dinner with his disciples. And in, in the early part of this prayer, he says, Lord, this is a prayer I pray not just for, he's praying to the Father, uh, he says, not just, I'm praying not just for these, these disciples in my presence, but for those who will believe because of their message. So in a sense, we are part of, in a very real sense, we're, we're being prayed for. And so Jesus says, righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. He's speaking specifically about these disciples. But the world will know that God has sent Jesus. But the fact that he says the world does not know you, what he means is, how can anybody know God but for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that, in that trinity, in that one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? That's a relationship that we have to be brought into. Who brings us into that relationship? It's Jesus that brings us into that relationship. So when a person is offended, they, say, they might say, well, I, I, I don't have to believe in God and I'm not lost. I feel fine. Thank you. It's sort of like that, you know, that wonderful Tolkien line, not all those who wander are lost. It's a very clever way of saying, I'm traveling, I'm exploring. But in this case, it speaks to our spiritual alienation. And so when a person says, well, I have my own concept of God, right? I have, a, I have a God different than the God you believe in. Don't call me lost. Yes, they're offended, but unnecessarily so. Because God himself, if you follow that Jesus is God in the flesh, God's not confused about anything. He knows what he's talking about, right? And so if you don't know him, you don't know him. Stop being offended and be curious. What does that mean? What would it look like for me to know you? So righteous father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may be in them. Now, this is scary close language. This is kind of Jesus saying, the love of the Father for me is exactly the love of the Father for you, these disciples and the future disciples, and for those who are not yet disciples. And that Jesus is saying, Lord, uh, Father, um, <clears throat> I, I continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may be in them. It's a relationship. The love of God is the fruit of this relationship. I mean, our experience of the love of God is the fruit of a relationship. It exists apart from the relationship. But as we enter into that relationship, the love of God becomes real to us because the living presence of God is in us through His Holy Spirit. So when a person says, um, invite Jesus into your life, uh, it sounds like a, a literary flourish. You know, it's a poetic thing. No, it's a literal thing. Somehow, without displacing who we are, God himself inhabits us. 
makes his home in our hearts. Think in that God wants to inhabit you in a way that brings you into your right mind, your right heart, a right understanding of who you are, who he is, what's your purpose in life. So feeling his love is a powerful, life-enhancing and life-changing experience. And I say feeling his love uh, because it's one thing to believe in him, but we also want to have this experience of him. That's how you test the reality of your beliefs. What are you experiencing? Uh, One of the neat things about being in love is that you feel uh, the love from another person. You feel the love you have for them. And when you don't feel it, you've lost that love and feeling, as the old song said. It's a, it's a call to say, whoa, whoa, what's happened? Where are we unaligned, misaligned? What are we not paying attention to that we're missing that feeling? Life is more than feelings, but feelings are essential and central to life. I know there's some uh, Christians who would say, hey, don't depend on feelings. God gave us feelings for a reason. Feelings are integral to our experience of life and personhood. But feelings can be so disconnected from truth and reality that we can do all kinds of crazy things based on our feelings. So the idea isn't to discount feelings. It's to be properly aligned in relationship with the living God that our feelings appropriately, congruently express reality. And so if you're feeling the love of God, that's a, that's a, that's a, a confirmation that you're in alignment with the Lord. If you're not feeling it, The issue just might be that sometimes you don't necessarily feel things that are true. But it also could be a reminder that, you know, I haven't been really paying attention to God. It's been weeks since I looked at one of those verses. It's been days or months since I've really spent time praying, saying, Lord, speak to me and let me speak to you. It's been ages since I've gathered in worship with other believers. So it's easy to lose feelings, but it's also easy to to reconnect with those feelings as we become aligned in relationship with the Lord. It's pretty straightforward. We receive the content we need and we're nourished and refreshed by it. You ate yesterday, you you drank yesterday, you need to eat and drink today. It's an ongoing process of being restored and renewed and refilled and nourished. So it's not a failure to say, gee, I don't feel the feelings I had when I first met Christ or that I had a, a year ago or last week. Just know that if, if check all the, the basic things. Am I, am I feeding on God's word? Am I, am I thirsty for his righteousness? Am I taking time to listen to him, pay attention to him? If not, I might be out of sorts. Now, if I'm doing all those things, then I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable to say, you know, my feelings aren't the thing I'm focusing on. I've checked, I'm, I'm, I'm in good, good shape, uh, and they'll come back, and they do. I love the way John says it in his letter, 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we may be called children of God. That identity is the basis for those feelings. Every child, even if they're clear on the fact that they're loved by their parents, has those moments when they're not feeling it. A small child that wakes up in the middle of the night and is afraid that something's under the bed or in the closet. Mom or dad get up, they comfort the child. It's not so much that they explain, gee, there's nothing under the bed, let's look. There's nothing in the closet, let's look. Though they might do that. But really what it is, is their presence is reassuring that child of of their relationship. It's bringing comfort just by their presence. It's reminding that child that you're not alone. You are loved. You are safe. We will protect you. 
There's nothing to fear. We are here. I love this. What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. But also that means is that children learn from their parents. As we, as we are, are, are mentored and coached by loving parents, what happens? We learn how to live. We learn the rules of the road. We learn love is unconditional, but lots of other things have conditions. Uh, you put your finger on the stove, you get burned. You run out in traffic, you might get run over. You, you're mean to somebody, they'll be mean to you. You lie, there's a consequence. You're selfish, that has an effect. And so as, as children grow up in the lavish love of their parents, they learn the rules of the road. They learn how to navigate through life. They learn right from wrong. They learn the disciplines necessary to, to develop inner strength. So that at some point in, 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 in adolescence, as they differentiate themselves from mom and dad, they're becoming their, their, a sense of their own person even as they continue to be in a wonderful relationship with their parents. And as long as the parents help that transition, it's pretty smooth. As a child becomes their own person in relationship with mom and dad, in relationship with the Lord, in relationship with other people. That process of individuation is essential uh, for maturity. So God allows us to grow up. Even though we're dependent on him, he gives us responsibility in terms of managing our life. As we turn to him, he gives us the resources we need to manage it well. And so let's look at some implications of his great love. His great love moves us to confess our absolute need for his absolute grace. He never refuses us when we say, Lord, I confess my need for you. I confess my sin. Forgive me. I confess my, my need for uh, feeling your love. Um, I, I want to receive that. Lord, I confess my lack of confidence in this situation. Give me confidence as I step out by faith to honor and glorify you and bless people. Very powerful. And, and as, we, as we yield ourselves to him, um, that, that verse we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, be still and know that I am God, that means surrender yourself to me and know that I am God. There, there's a process of catharsis that comes with that. That is an, that we're relieved of all this pent-up anxiety. Uh, in the case of confessing our sin, we're relieved of the guilt and the shame of our sin. Catharsis is, is both self-emptying uh, it's what happens in a good counseling situation. A person goes in burdened with all kinds of stuff and as a counselor helps them unpack uh, what their attachments are, what their beliefs are, what their experiences have been. Their confusion about the boundaries of who I am and what I'm responsible for, who are you and what are you responsible for. It's often a process of catharsis, sometimes through tears. Breakdown, uh, because it's part of a breakthrough. The catharsis of tears. Sometimes it's the catharsis of laughter. That laughter just feels cleansing. So uh, it's about cleansing and restoration. And we're simultaneously emptied and filled. Jesus calls us being born again. Again, an alignment in relationship from being dead to being alive in the Lord. From alienated to being in, in close relationship with the Lord. From being rebellious to being in love with the Lord. So, so that's one of the first implications of, of this great love. The second one uh, of several is this. It produces spiritual fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These kinds of byproducts of the Holy Spirit nurturing us and developing us are symptoms, they're signs of the good thing that God's love is accomplishing in us. We're starting to think his thoughts after him. We're starting to align our feelings and our character qualities with him. 
We're being conformed by his will, working out uh, this transformation in us, a transformation of our mind, a transformation of our hearts, a realignment of, of our sense of worth and dignity. And these fruits then, again, are, are signals that, that it's working. And, and if we find ourselves saying things or doing things or writing texts or emails or letters to people um, that don't reflect love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control, we know that oh, something's wrong. I'm not handling this well. It's okay to feel angry, but it's possible to be angry and practice the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, you might be outraged by something that's wrong. It's just not just. It's not good. It's horrible. It's bad. It's oppressive. It's evil. But even then, the way we confront that, the way we, we approach that, still has the hallmark of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. You might be in an incredible conflict, confrontation with the forces of evil. But the fruit of the Spirit should still be an aspect of our motivation and our actual uh, behavior in, in carrying on uh, necessary conflicts and confrontations. You follow that? So if you find you're doing a thing that's good, but you're doing it in a way that's not good because it doesn't reflect the fruit of the Spirit, check yourself and stop and say, hey, hey, you know, uh, this is an important conversation and an important issue to me, but I'm not handling this very well. Forgive me. Don't, don't though, default into being nice. Nice. Nice is a non-entity. Nice is nothingness. The fruit of the Spirit is not about being nice. Nice is often a way of distancing ourselves from commitment. Not wanting to feel what we need to feel. Not wanting to do what we need to do. Being nice is often indifference, irresponsibility. See, the fruit of the Spirit are completely engaging. And this is one of the aspects of God's great love. We become engaged in life, not disengaged from life. Now, that doesn't mean every issue is your issue. That's wisdom and discernment. But the fruit of the Spirit makes us, uh, confirms that we are alive in Christ and that we're wanting to live according to his purposes. And so we can self-correct. As we see, we're handling situations not well, but it's a situation we need to handle. And we were trying to get it right, but it's not right. We have a check on, on our motives and our actions. Okay, is this reflective of the love of, of God? Is it the peace of God, et cetera, et cetera? You get the idea. Uh, his great love alters and focuses our concerns and commitments. We start to be concerned and committed to other things besides our own well-being, our own pleasure, our own pursuits. We say, Lord, what needs do you want me to help need, meet in the world? What people do I need to be caring for that might be inconvenient? What commitments do I need to make that will cost me something, but it's a value, not a burden? Uh, his great love draws us into a community of truth, love, and grace. We want to be connected to people who aren't just doing group think, but are thinking like God as a group. That, that are saying, we are, we are coming alive in Christ. It's a fantastic experience and journey. Let's share it. Uh, and support it and encourage each other and hold each other accountable in that journey. So that's part of the great love. It draws us into that kind of community of truth and love and grace. His great love gives us staying power. We don't just give up. Say, oh, forget it. It's not worth it. Staying power and frees us to celebrate, sacrifice, and even suffer for love. Now, people suffer for love because they're being stupid about love. They're, they're compromising their values. Uh, they're doing things that are really uh, not appropriate. 
not good, not right, not true, not loving. And therefore, they're suffering. I'm talking about the kind of suffering that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be so committed in this relationship, marriage, uh, parenting, uh, in, in friendship, that if, if it means suffering with you while you're working something through, I'm willing to do that. If it means having to sacrifice for your well-being, I'm willing to do that. Healthy suffering and healthy sacrifice are ennobling human qualities. And they really do give us the, the, um, the reason to celebrate. Because when we see we've moved through the suffering and the sacrifice, and we're celebrating something that is good that has emerged from that, uh, that makes us feel so close to the Lord and to other people. His great love aligns our beliefs and behaviors so that we think, speak, and love like God. This is called congruence. Our inner core world aligns with our uh, public world. We don't have a fake identity projecting into the world. It's really us in the world. And so our beliefs and behaviors are consistent. They're congruent. And again, when we fail, we know how to recover. We, we confess, we repent, we realign. His great love makes us vulnerable and humble and confident and credible. When I'm vulnerable, I'm willing to take risks and open my center. Not just be guarded and defensive. Uh, humble means I don't know it all. I don't have everything I need to do what God has called me to do. So I get to depend on him. I get to depend on people in appropriate ways. <clears throat> to be confident it doesn't have to be arrogant. It doesn't have to be posing and posturing. Confidence can simply come from the fact that I know who I am. I know who God is. I know what I'm supposed to do. And I'm willing to step out in faith and do that. It's, a, it's, a, it's an expression of trust. Not a false projection of power or insecurity. And then credibility. Out of our vulnerability and humility uh, comes our authority and our credibility. The fact that we have a right to um, have an opinion, that's part of our authority. We have, we have a right to speak into situations, that's part of our authority. And the credibility is that our vulnerability and humility cause people to want to trust us. And say, okay, this is not just some ploy. This is not just some move you're trying to pull on me. This comes out of the depth of your character. Again, uh, the fruit of the Spirit become apparent to people. They say, that's the kind of person I want to trust. I want to be in a business deal with. I, I want to spend my life with. I want to be my spouse, my parent, my partner, my friend. Uh, his love... <clears throat> His great love, uh, this, is, this, this might sound like a downer after all these positive things, but his great love makes us wise and discerning uh, about the culture we live in. Uh, culture is malleable, right? It's not uniform. We get all kinds of elements, good, bad, and indifferent in culture. But we need to be discerning to be able to call out those things in culture that are toxic and corrosive. And his great uh, love for us allows us to see that often love in our culture is deformed and dysfunctional. Uh, why? Because it's entirely conditional. If you do that, because you do that, if you don't, you're out. Uh, it becomes indulgent. People saying, oh, I'm just, I'm just going, showing myself some self-love. No, I'd call that self-destruction. You're self-medicating uh, through drugs or alcohol, pornography, materialism. That indulgence is not going to bless you. It's going to destroy you. Uh, it's sentimental. Sentimental is really thin uh, compassion, empathy, and love. Sentimental is, oh, I have all these feelings, but I don't really have a commitment to your well-being. 
Sentimentality is a very easy, attractive thing to have. Sentimental people um, that connect that sentiment to a deep love are congruent. Sentimental people who really are so disconnected from their heart and from right and wrong that they just want feelings, but they don't want the character that supports those feelings. That's a problem. Um, we get to confront what is transactional in our culture, using and abusing people, lo- uh, loving things and, and, and using people, uh, treating people as widgets and, and, and replaceable parts versus precious uh, you know, unrepeatable miracle, miracles of God's creative work. So we see that God's love does not discount or minimize our sin. Oh, it's not that bad. No, he knows it will destroy us. So what does God do? He speaks to our sin, but his love rescues us in the midst of it, gives us alternatives to say no to what we should say no to, to say yes to what we should say yes to, to realize that often our sin represents needs that we're attaching uh, to things that can't meet the needs that will actually hurt us. So an affair is never a solution to a problem marriage. Running away from home isn't a good solution to what a family needs. Sometimes people have to get away for their own self-protection and well-being. That, 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 we get that. But the idea that somehow we don't confront sin for what it is means that we don't connect with reality as it is. So God's love does not discount or minimize our sin. He names it, he calls it out, and he rescues us from it. All of this through his great love. And so his great love is, of course, epitomized on that in Holy Communion because on that night, that final meal when Jesus has gathered his disciples together, he breaks the bread and blesses it, this unleavened bread. He says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. A radical statement of his abiding, eternal, everlasting love for them. And likewise, he took this cup, the Elijah cup, the cup that is on every Passover table but never uh, consumed. He, the Savior, it's symbolic of salvation, redemption. Jesus takes that cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, a radical, outrageous, provocative, and beautiful expression of his uh, unassailable, unequivocal, unconditional love and commitment uh, for us and to us. That's the God who loves you. God loves you. Uh, As somebody said, this much that he'd go on a cross for you. He loves you this much that he embraces you with his love, fills you with his Holy Spirit. Why? So that you can be alive now and forever. That's the God who loves you. Let's spend 52 weeks reflecting on him, one verse, one week at a time together. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your great love. We thank you that it shapes our identity. It fills us with knowledge. It transforms our experience of life. Thank you that you make this possible because you love us. We pray this in your high and holy name. In the name of Jesus, amen. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you together. May the Lord make his face to shine on you so that you could receive and reflect his glory in your life. May the Lord give you everything you need to walk with him now and forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.